Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me tonight is Natani Lane Kelp. Hi, Natan. Hi, Bernice. It's great to be back. Oh, great to have you back. Well, let's welcome our callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. You can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have a wonderful lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. If you've logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions of the guests. You can also post your comments or questions following the show in the History and Genealogy Forum of Afrogenius.com. Well, tonight's discussion will focus on the historical significance of genealogy. And, Natan, I know that you have been digging into records for a long time, and our guest, Dr. Pearl Alice Marsh, sent me a question. Is genealogy just about documenting your bloodline, or is it telling a larger story about the time and place your family lived? So, Natan, what do you think about this question? I think it is the latter. You can take time to trace your ancestors, but you won't have a true understanding about their lives without understanding the times in which they lived. Knowing about the history of the area, knowing what's going on, not only within the community, community but within the nation, may help add more, uh, let's say, meat to the bones to get a fuller picture. And I can think of a, a small example, and that is in researching one of my ancestors from South Carolina, it mentioned that he lived in a place called Rocky Pond, which was a name mm-hmm. I never heard of before. Mm-hmm. And in conducting some research, I was fortunate to find a book that, believe it or not, is the illustrated history of the post offices in South Carolina. And it Mm -hmm. showed, there was a map in the book showing where this area was. Because the name is nowhere around come time of the 1870 census. Uh And doing additional research, I found a a will from the 1840s, which mentioned the area of Rocky Pond. And then then finding a map from the 1870s where he lived, I could see it was the same area. But Mm -hmm. that shows... uh, changing over time names of places. Right, and I I wonder, you know, what was going on historically in that particular location at that time. Well, our guest tonight, Dr. Pearl Alice Marsh, certainly has a lot to say about that, this topic. And she has spent, I mean, really 20 years doing genealogical uh, research. She realized, you know, that as her family and friends grew older, their stories were important to the history of the Depression-era African-American migration to the Pacific Northwest. 
especially the America's labor history in the logging industry. She then began her genealogical research in earnest after recording and transcribing over a 1,000 pages of material. That's a lot of pages. And she found, you know, that there were several African-American genealogy organizations and resources through the Internet. Now, she currently serves as the global health policy for one and is responsible for developing and coordinating the global health strategy. But did you also know that she was instrumental in getting the legislation passed and signed by President William Clinton to preserve the Freedmen's Bureau records? Now, those are records that I certainly have found my ancestors in, and I am so ever so grateful that Dr. Marsh had something to do with this legislation. She holds a Ph.D. in political science and a Master of Public Health from the University of California at Berkeley and a B.A. in social welfare from Sacramento State College. So let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Pearl Alice Marsh to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Dr. Marsh, welcome. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you on the show, and I just so much enjoyed talking to you the other day. We had quite a chat. (laughs) We have quite a chat, especially to know that you're doing research in North Louisiana. Wow, what a difference since I'm from South Louisiana. Okay, so let's begin with that question. Is genealogy just documenting your bloodline, or is it telling a larger story about the time and place your family lived? For me, I think it started with documenting bloodline, and I think for a lot of us, that's where we start. You know, kind of the the biblical analogy, who begat who begat who. And after I had documented a long um, bloodline back to the the 1870s, I remember looking down at my sheet of paper and said, well, now you have a long list of names and birth dates and marriage dates and death dates, and you don't know anything about the people on this long sheet of paper. So then it made me think about the historical context. Where were they born? Um, we talk about you know important events. When were they emancipated? What was their uh, relationship to the community? So it opened up a whole new avenue of, of inquiry that I then was forced to pursue down in north-central Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So how has your genealogical research led you in terms of the historical context and understanding of your own research? Mm-hmm. I um, was fascinated when I looked, well, let me step back one second. One sure. of the things I found real important after I spent many, many, many months uh, in the National Archives was that there were certain uh, parts of my research I had to go to north-central Louisiana to find. Um, and that was because there were some interesting social patterns in terms of names of the community that I had heard from my father and from my aunts and uncles, um, but that I needed to go and look at the relationship within the community, where they lived in relation to one another. There was another interesting piece that I came across that I was able to research when I got to Louisiana about land acquisition after emancipation. There was a whole group within that settlement area who homesteaded land, but there were some, uh, also some former slaves who purchased land, including mm-hmm. my great-grandfather, and there were two or three very large uh, landholders. By the 1900s, my great-grandfather owned 640 acres of land. So the whole question of how land was transferred from slave owners or from people, whites in that area, to the African-American community has just fascinated me. Well, um, it sounds fascinating, too. And I'll just say one thing. It's, uh, I went When I first started uh, going there to research it, I went to the university there in uh, Ruston, mm-hmm. and they had a guy there who was the expert 
on the history of Jackson Parish. That's our parish. So I looked him up and went to see him, and I asked him about the African Americans and land acquisition and all that other stuff. And he looked at me real blank and said, oh, well, I don't know anything about those people. <laughs> so a lot of this research we have to do ourselves. Yes, yes. And so thank goodness you were the one to go in there and start doing that search to find that you had a, a, a group, a, a, you said a settlement, is that what you the, the word you use? Uh, yeah. I call it a settlement because there were, it looked like about maybe 14 to 20 families that are still there, a lot of them. The names are still there mm-hmm. um, that had lived there since emancipation. And were you able to determine where they were prior to being in that area? Some. Uh, they, they, some had lived there as slaves in that area. Mm-hmm. Some migrated from surrounding parishes, like on my my maternal grandmother's side, the Elmores, they migrated over from Wachita Parish. Mm-hmm. Some migrated over from Mississippi. I mean, people were in motion back then. So yes. if I was able to find where some of the people uh, came from, Alabama as well. Oh, okay. Well, just kind of take us through uh, some historical events you would consider essential for genealogists to understand when they begin to explore the lives of their ancestors. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly the seminal event is our emancipation for me, uh, and that's to know where our families were when they were emancipated. Uh, there's a story in our family on my great, my maternal great-grandmother's side that her mother was in the kitchen in Texas when the soldiers came through and told them they were emancipated, they were free. And then they told her, they didn't ask, they told her to fix them a meal. And she recalled her fixing the biscuits and the gravy and all of that for the Union soldiers. So, you know, if you could gather stories like that from the actual emancipation is great. Another one actually has to do with documentation. And the 1880 census really is the workhorse of genealogists, and I'm sure most of those listening do know, because that's when we were recorded in a more complete fashion. And that lets you see where your family uh, who were... uh, registered in 1880, where they were born, where they lived, where their parents are born. It gives you a pretty rich base on which then to pursue further research. For me, the another, I, I talk a lot, sorry, but for That's me, okay. another, another seminal historical period was the migration from the South and what drove that migration. My Part of my work now is documenting the migration of loggers to the Pacific Northwest that wasn't documented. We all know about the 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 um, the migration to the Midwest, Chicago, the migration to the east. The migration to the west is just being uncovered and the migration to the Pacific Northwest is still yet to be told. So that's another uh, seminal historical moment for me is the migration period. And of course the depression. Uh, how our families survived the Depression. I could go on and on. I, there, there's so many his places where we can capture our families' histories and how they coped that, um, you know, it's, it's unending. I say genealogy is a lifetime project. Absolutely, absolutely. And certainly what you have really given us was a just kind of overview of the various historical occurrences uh, that we certainly know of. I mean, we also have the various wars that also can place us in a historical context of what was happening to our families. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what advice basically would you give to anyone who's just beginning any genealogical journey? I have to give a shout-out to Aphrogenius. Aphrogenius.com, that when I first started doing my research, I didn't have a clue where to start. 
but by going on the internet and searching around for African American genealogy, I came across Afrogenius.com, and I joined. And I'm telling you, those were the tutors, the mentors that guided me and laid the foundation for all of my research. Um, I even at one point on the listserv sent out a notice for people to meet me at the National Archives. And a few of us met at the National Archives every Saturday for a while to do our do genealogical research together. So that was just an incredible research. I think it's important to have mentors who can help guide you. Um, you know, I had a professor who once said, it's search, it's research, and then it's re-research. Mm-hmm. And so it's pretty easy when you're using uh, documents and secondhand material and stuff to go down some misleading paths. So to have those mentors of mine from Afrogenius to guide me was just invaluable. And it is most definitely an excellent resource for everyone. So thank you so much for mentioning Afrogenius.com. So are African Americans facing any unique research opportunities to find their ancestors? Well, um, I'll go back to the um, the Freedmen Bureau records and getting those preserved. When I first went to look at them myself, I realized how fragile they were, and I was stunned to find out that they had not been preserved and then organized for research. They still haven't been organized for research the way we had planned. We wanted a digitally digital searchable database, but uh, the fact that they have been preserved uh, gives us an enormous resource for our research. And thank you so much because you had a lot to do with us at least being able to to see those records. And now many are working to have those uh, documents digitized so that we can now look at them. Virginia is one of them, and we had uh, Selma Stewart on our show to talk about the Freedmen Bureau records in Virginia. And so, so many of us are just so, so excited. I know I'm excited because I found my own ancestor in the Freedmen Bureau records in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So that's a very valuable resource for us, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. It is an excellent resource. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we're going to take a quick break, come back, and continue this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and co-host, Natan Elaine Kemp, in the chat. And you are listening to Dr. Pearl Alice Marsh. And I want to remind everyone that all of my shows are archived and available immediately after the broadcast. Now, back to Dr. Marsh. Now, I understand that you have been gathering oral histories of elder family members and friends now, have you uh, collected these histories? How have you collected these histories? And really, what have you uncovered as you went through that process? It's it's one of the things that I encourage everyone to do. I um, have, as I said, 
you fall in love with genealogy the more you do it, and you fall in love with historical research the more you do it. At some point I realized that my father and his peers, who were the first loggers to go to the Pacific, black loggers to go to the Pacific Northwest, were getting older, and I needed to capture their stories. So I used to, I a number of times, took my father from California up to Oregon, and I would just sit with him and his friends and not so much interview them because they were uncomfortable being interviewed, but I would put my tape recorder right in the middle of them and just encourage them to talk and tell their stories. And after a while, they got extremely comfortable with the tape recorder, and I remember coming back once I had to dash out to a store, and they said, hey, is that thing still on? Um, so I have their words that not only described their migration to the Northwest, it describes work, labor, their social community, everything. And I I reg- only regret that I didn't capture the women's voices. My mother and her peers, their women peers, had all passed along. But this is a history that could not have been captured and would have been completely lost had I not done that. I think everyone should try to capture their family's history. Interview old older relatives. Interview uh, younger people. I'm going to interview myself uh, next month to have have me put my stories on on record. So it just becomes it enriches all the research that you've done when you bring it down to that personal story of the people who actually were living in that time. Absolutely, and thank you very much for mentioning the oral histories and the fact that you're going to interview yourself. I mean, how many of us have even thought about doing that? Yeah, I went on the Internet. You can find anything on the Internet. And I found some... um, Questionnaires, genealogy questionnaires. And so I'm just going to go through the questionnaires and talk through my responses to it. I'll probably just do it on audio, but now you can do it on video. We have so many tools available to us now to bring our research to life in in more wonderful ways. You are so right. I know here in in the Washington D.C. area, there's the Family History Center, and actually, someone could you know, make an appointment and go in and make a, a video, and sit there and interview someone else, or just sit there and start talking. So the the resources are available, mm-hmm. and that's a that's an excellent idea, though, to to just get that information. What kinds of questions did you you said you just put a video? I mean, and you. Just let the, your elders talk. Though you had certain questions that you asked them. Well, every now and then I would intervene, but mostly I would just let them tell their stories because uh, they were interacting with one another. So they would say, "Oh, remember when um, when Slim uh, fell out in the woods and we had to carry him back to the candy wagon and drive him home?" I just let their stories evolve like that. Every now and then I might ask a question for clarity, like if they mentioned a piece of equipment that I didn't know or if they mentioned someone's name that I had heard but didn't have a last name, I would say, what was his last name? So that's how I would keep it flowing. But mostly I let it was pretty free form, and mm-hmm. it really worked. Mm-hmm. It really well, you worked. know, often I've talked to people, and I would say, "Well, what did you what did you learn when you grew up? What tell me about your family? Or did they tell you anything?" And some people will say, "Nothing. Nobody talked. Nobody would give me inf- any information." But perhaps there was talking going on, and maybe the real issue is there wasn't a lot of listening. Well, I ran into that in Louisiana, where everybody's mind was blank. Nobody remembered anything. Nobody would tell me. But I kept asking one relative after another. Finally, I came across one uncle. As I said, he told everybody's secrets. He even told me his secrets. So (laughs) occasionally you'll find that one individual in the family who's kind of the family historian and is is willing to talk. But that's something we run into a lot. I have a, a relative now who's 102 years old, 
and she won't talk. But every now and then she'll tell me a story. Uh, she loved playing basketball when she was in elementary school. She mm-hmm. tells me a story about when the Klan came by their house uh, and and with torches and stuff. So I just, it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience to wait for those stories to emerge. But, you know, in the scheme of things, little stories matter. Even if it's a, you know, a little something that only converts into a two or three page narrative, that to hand down to our next generations is a critical piece of our history. Mhm. Mhm. Absolutely, absolutely. And someone has posted in the chat, you could always go to StoryCorps. And that's a place where you can go in and tell the story and get others to come in and share their stories. So I'm so glad that you, uh, you know, brought up the whole issue of oral history and taking time. You can't mm-hmm. rush them because you might not get anything at all, nor can you intimidate. No. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. You have to be very, very patient. I know I, by the time I finished my uh, oral history project, I knew much more about Medicare than I ever thought I would want to know. That was about, you know, 15, 20 years ago because they would take these spinoffs into did did they get their Medicare card and this and that, and then they'd get back to their stories. So you have to be very patient. Well, what exactly was the or is the, the, the oral history project? Well, the my oral history project has gone from just my narratives and, and my um, manuscripts to uh, one of the descendants of one of the loggers, her name is Gwen Trice, um, established the Maxwell Heritage Interpretive Center, which is a little community that our family settled into in Oregon. And we're reconstructing the whole social history of that little community, of the African-American loggers that came there and their families and what where they came from and what they did. So I started out with our community there in Louisiana, and now we migrated to Oregon. We're doing a social history of that community and and what the African-Americans contributed to, uh, to Maxville and Wallowa County, where it's located. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there's a comment coming out of the chat, and it's from George Jeter. And he mentioned that sometimes reminiscing is too painful for our elders. What do you have to say about that? I think that's true. Um, And I can't, I have, you can't, well, let me back up. You can't force stories out of elders. Uh, And if you push from my experience, is that they just get more agitated and more reluctant. Um, I've asked my elderly cousins, who uh, there's only one left now, whether her parents talked at all about uh, slavery and post-slavery because um, they were born just at the end of slavery. And she says they never would talk about it, her grandparents. And so... Some you you know you gather what you can gather, um, you let them tell what they're willing to tell, and and you just have to be done with that. Now one other way, let me correct that just a little bit. One other way of trying to get to some of the stories is to talk to their friends in their communities. So mm-hmm. if cousin Stella won't tell me. Well, then I'd go down and talk to the next uh, lady down the road who was her contemporary and see if she has things to tell. So you just, it's very, very tough, but you, you know, you have to, to just take your time and let them piece it together as much as they will. And it, it sounds like, I mean, this is community engagement. And if there if there's any way to engage a community so that they could talk about the assets, you know, I I've been involved a lot in in creating healthy communities, and so one approach I've used is to have a, the community groups talk about what's the assets, what's good about the community, mm-hmm. because it's very easy to say what's bad about the community. Mm-hmm. So to get them in there to talk about well what's good what what have we done in this community and get them to talk about the church 
mm-hmm. and what the church has done, or what the community did to help a family uh, in trouble. It it does give you an idea of the dynamics of those relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I just encourage. Uh, anyone who's starting out on your genealogical journey that uh, it is a journey and so you, it takes patience and as I said you search you research and you re-research and you revisit and you, you're always doubling back and you always pick up little nuggets here and there that continue mm-hmm. to build your story and that's mm-hmm. that's how it's done and that's why some of us, I'm sure like you and many uh, of my Afrogenius friends, have been at this for you know, 15, 20, 25 years. Like you said, it's, it's something that you never stop. Mm-hmm. You never stop. Well, yesterday, let me just talk about this, this whole notion of understanding history. Yesterday I was with this um, history teacher. And he said, at the end of the year, they may ask the kids to evaluate, well, what's their favorite course? Well, guess what wasn't their favorite course? History. Oh, I was going to say history. Oh, history. Yeah. And he said, you know, you, you, you're, in, you're into records, you're genealogists. What would happen if we taught history by telling students, go and bring us a document and analyze the document and stand before the class and present it? And give the history of the document. So let's say they may have a, a, a labor contract, or they may have a Civil War pension record, mm-hmm. or they may have a, a marriage license that was issued in 1862 by the Freedmen Bureau. What would history mean to them if they had a living document to share and to discuss rather than a bunch of facts that they probably can't even relate to? What do you think? Would that make kids understand and like history better? I have to say, I was no fan of history myself, which is why I'm a political scientist and not a historian. And I I do think it's a matter of making it, it's the story, of Uh making it interesting for young kids to want to go back and to understand where they came from or, or you know, what events took place that were important to community or country or what have you. Um, it There have to be ways. I'm not a pedagogical expert at all, but there have to be ways to engage them so that they want to understand history and that it comes alive to them. I think history feels dead to most kids. Uh-huh. It doesn't feel like a living thing. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you could make it feel like more of a living thing and that history informs the present, then you may be able to capture them. So it, it, it's something, I mean, it's a dialogue, but n- not to mention just the kids, because we also have the adult learners and we have those who are out there doing genealogical research. And at what point, as you do your research, do you start asking the question, what's going on here? You know, what happened in this community? I mean, I remember walking through a cemetery and I noticed a, a line of tombstones, and I started looking at the dates, and I started looking at the ages, and I said, something really bad happened in this community. Uh-huh. And so I, I, I questioned someone, what happened here? And they said, oh, there was a fire. I mean, they said more. And so it was more than just those names and the uh-huh. dates. It was an event. Uh-huh. And it was something that caused a great deal of pain in that community. But do we ask the question? Uh-huh. I love I This is an odd thing to say, but I love cemeteries. They tell you so much. I went to a cemetery in Louisiana. I went to a funeral at a cemetery, and as I was walking around looking at the headstones, I noticed a name that was spelled it was, I hope nobody gets me, but it was Marish, and like Marsh with an I in the middle. And mm-hmm. I thought, that's kind of strange. So I started asking around, who are, who is this family and who are they? Well, it turns out it, their name change dated back to a falling out in the family. 
uh, back in the like 1890 or or turn of the century, and so the one person would often spell this name slightly different. And so there's a whole bunch of my relatives who spell their name slightly different than we do. And I found that by walking through a cemetery and looking at the name uh, at the headstone. So there are all sorts of things that you find when you're going through cemeteries. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue this discussion. Just a quick break, okay? Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. You have been listening to Dr. Pearl Alice Marsh, and she has just given us some interesting information and shared information on the historical context in which your ancestors lived. Now, if you would like to ask a question of the guests or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. In the meantime, I'd like to just ask you a couple of more questions. What or who has helped you the most in conducting your research projects? Oh, wow. I Well, I'd say in terms of the community, I, I would have to say my Afrogenius mentors are number one. In terms of my family oral history, it would be my my uncle Alvy, who was just great. In terms of mining the National Archives, uh, there's an archivist there, uh, Reggie Washington. I know I'm calling names, but I have to call names. Who just is, was tremendously helpful in guiding me through uh, those all the records that were available at the National Archives. Um, so you know, I, those are the just off the top of my head the people and the the organization that I would symbol that really made my genealogy research take off. Okay, and then Natan has a question from one of the uh, chatters. Yes, Dr. Marsh. One of the questions: Can you speak to the use of history to fill in gaps when there are no primary documents? Related to your family? Yeah, yeah. What I would say, I mean, that's a very, very important question because we do hit dead ends. In Jackson Parish, somebody burned the courthouse down in 1890, I think it was. So there's a 20, there's a, all of the records there of land and people getting married and voting, all of that is gone. So how do you fill fill that in? You have to become a real historian and a storyteller, I believe, and do some extrapolation and some kind of thinking creatively about what the context must have been like. And historians, who I'm not, can can help talk through how you shape that. But I do think that you read the history of the of the area in which your family lived, and then imagine. I think if we read enough the history, we can under, begin to understand at least what their experiences were probably like uh, in those communities. Regarding, and I wonder, we, go ahead. I'm sorry, just to follow up, Dr. Marsh. 
in terms of reading that history of the local area, I would assume you would suggest uh, newspapers from a time period or maybe contacting a local historical or genealogical society for references? You you read uh, newspapers? Actually, if you go to the Library of Congress archives, or even if you just kind of, I hate to say it, but Google search books, that you could find local manuscripts listed, all sorts of things that help fill out what was happening in in those uh, in the communities and where families live. The cities and the counties often have, uh, you know, good resources that you can go back and look. I found in the library in Lincoln Parish. Uh, documentation where my ancestors first emancipated, organized their first uh, church, and it said under a branch arbor. I didn't know what a branch arbor was. I looked it up and found out. But you, you know, you can go and find those things. I think within the, the local uh, local facilities, libraries, universities, etc. Okay. And and that's certainly excellent, excellent because when you you write the newspapers and and there are all kind of resources. There's chronicling chronicling America, which is part of the uh, Library of Congress. And you know you mentioned Natan, the genealogical societies and the local genealogical societies, some of which have histories of those communities. Now, some of you may not be in those histories, but you do understand that you will get a feel for what was going on in that community. And that's an opportunity for you to turn around and start writing the history of your community. So, And we do have to acknowledge that sometimes there's not going to be representation about what's going on, let's say, in the African-American community. You may only get it from a negative point of view and some of the papers written for that time period, but it still gives you some insight to that community. I found in the Lincoln Parish Library where family, white families had turned over uh, diaries and records that their family uh, elders had kept. And you're right, often we weren't included, or if we were included, it was in a negative way, but what I found is if you read through them and it's very tedious, every now and then you'll come across some little nugget that'll give you a name or an event or something that touches on our community. So it, it's hard research uh, doing it that way, but you know, like it's all putting a puzzle together, little bitty pieces at a time. You are so right. Definitely. Well, now, you mentioned the Internet. Now, how have you used the Internet and the social media, and have you done it with any success? Well, you know, now, when I started doing the uh, my census data research, I'd have to go down to the National Archives and go through those awful microfilm rolls. And now, of course, you can get a lot of the census online. So anytime I feel like it, I'll go back and re-dig up a relative, an ancestor, and and read, you know, kind of look again at who the neighbor, who was living next door, and so forth. So the the internet has been absolutely wonderful in that regard. Um, I also have found that younger relatives uh, are less interested in email and stuff than they are in networking through Facebook. So I found by, well, let me back up a second. I took my two paternal, my two surnames from my father's side, Marsh and Elmore. And I went down, I put, searched in Facebook, and I found all the black Marshes and all the black Elmores I could, and I sent them friend notices. Well, it turns out I had, I think, three or four hits on the Elmore name, and we formed a little research group. And these are cousins that I would never heard of, would never know, would never meet, and we've begun to do research together. They've sent pictures. We've shared a lot that way. On the Marsh side, I haven't had that same direct hit, but I have come across a large Marsh family in Alabama, and we've begun to share notes 
on our historical research. I've been able to do a little research for them because the um, the census records are on the Internet. So I've used social media less in a really strict, you know, formal research way than, well, I guess that's what social media is, than just kind of socializing and chatting and finding people. Mhm, mhm. Well, I can tell you one thing. I mean, social social media certainly uh, is one way of helping genealogists because they network with each other. It becomes like a, a, a informal family in a way because you are sharing some of your strategies and offering assistance to others. Well, there's a lot of discussion going on on the chat right now concerning the brush arbors. And so, uh, <laughs> and so, so you have certainly brought up something that I'm sure uh, we will be doing more research on, no doubt about it. Well, tell do me other something. people do they have the same brush arbor experience? I don't. Uh, why don't we ask? You know, have any of you had any uh, brush arbor experiences? Why don't you let us know? Either post it on the chat or call in to tell us uh, that experience. I know there's a question: What's a brush arbor? <laughs> and but, and so it's it it is. Uh, you mentioned it, and it raised the question. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's literally you build a structure with poles, um, and you put uh, branches on top for cover. It's like something that you would put in a back backyard. Uh, you know, a very, um, what's the word, very temporary shelter is what it was. Mm-hmm. And that's where they convened their church. That's where, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. And can you just see that image? I mean, think historically and see the brush arbors and here they are, you know, praising, and uh, but the, they came together uh, mm-hmm. as church. It mm-hmm. brings up a beautiful image. Mm-hmm. Well, have have you uncovered any surprises in any of your research? Um, well, there are always people who you didn't know you were related. Uh, I. <laughs> There, my grand great grandfather actually had another family that we didn't know about, so we found I found them. I also, in my oral history, if I can if I can just belabor this for one minute, there was a story that my father and my mother told about how my father was arrested for bootlegging liquor, and he was unjustly uh, accused of selling whiskey to Indians on the reservation. And my they always said it was such, you know, fierce defense of my father's honor. And when I was going back through some of the tapes that I had left while he was there chatting with his friends and I was off doing other things, he told a story of how he got caught selling liquor to the Indians on the reservation. And how uh he was taken before the judge and they didn't catch him because the guy said he had sold a half pint and he was only selling pints. So the story they had told us about his innocence was a total fraud all of those years. Hmm. My father mm-hmm. had actually been selling whiskey on the reservation. <laughs> <laughs> so you And you uncovered that? Mm-hmm. Well, through the oral history. That's right. Well, I'm going to give in, any individual who would like to make a comment or call in, just call in at 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host if you would like to ask a question. Natan, any words from you? Well, I was just curious, Dr. Marsh, have you done any uh, provided any DNA samples? I have. And, and I I did it back in 2006, and it came back, and I'm totally baffled by real science. So I just put it down and didn't touch it until the other day when I was uh, talking to Bernice, and we were talking about DNA. So I went and dug it up, and I've just gone online and joined a DNA group to try and find my column, my in quotes, my cousins. My mitochondrial DNA is. Balanta Fulani from Guinea-Bissau, 
and Bindi from Sierra Leone and Mendinka from uh, Senegal. But I've just started, so I can't go any further than that. I do know that I, I went online and searched and have found a group of about six people who share that same uh, DNA, so I'll be in communications with them. Well, good luck. That's wonderful. And somebody said, hey, woo-hoo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, do you have any closing remarks or tips to share with the listeners? Well, first, I want to just commend you for such a formidable and phenomenal program. Uh, not this one, but just this this dialogue that you do on genealogy. It is really, really uh, such an impressive piece of work that you do, uh, the both of you. And I would just, thank you. Mm-hmm, and I would just tell anyone listening. I'm sure that there are people who've been doing genealogy as long as I have, just to encourage. Others, anyone you come across, to encourage them to do genealogy. I had a chance recently, a young boy, 14 years old, and his mother died suddenly, followed immediately behind his grandfather dying, and he just had the question, who am I? And I was able to sit with him at the computer and go back through some of the records and just create a history for him. And I hope he'll just, you know, be interested in continuing that. So promote genealogy wherever you can. It's, I think it grounds people. It really uh, helps our youth understand who they are and how important they are. Wonderful advice, and I think you're so, so right. Okay. Well, we're so happy that you were able to join us tonight. And stay tuned because Nathan and I are going to talk about what's going to come up in August. And, oh, do we have a lineup in August. So we're taking a quick break, and we'll be back in shortly. Archives and Beyond. This is Bernice Bennett with co-host Natan Elaine Keem, and we've just completed a wonderful discussion with Dr. Pearl Alice Marsh. Well, let me tell you what's happening in March. I mean, excuse me, August. Oh, my goodness, what a lineup we have for you in August. The first guest coming on next Thursday is Char Macabo Ba. And her talk is on who's in the house. That's right, who's in the house. She's going to talk about all those rumors and lodgers and people that you see in the census. You know, some of those people who just might be family members. So you must tune in to hear her. She has been doing genealogy research since 1981, and she's appeared on numerous television interviews and documentaries and has researched genealogies of well-known individuals. And she currently works as a part-time genealogist on African-American families in the city of Alexandria, Virginia. Now, she is a 2010 recipient of the Virginia Genealogical Society Volunteer Award and a 2009 recipient of the Alexandria History Award from the Alexandria History Society. She has her own genealogy column, Charles Corner, and the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society newsletter. So please tune in. 
Don't miss Char. We love her, and she has so much to share with us about who's in the house. Okay, Natan, who can we expect the following week? The following week on August 9th will be Lisa B. Lee, and the discussion will be becoming a professional genealogist. Lisa B. Lee is a professional genealogist herself. She is an owner of GotGenealogy.com, a website designed to help genealogists make the most of their online researches. And uh, Lisa B. Lee is a graduate of the National Institute for Genealogical Studies at the University of Toronto. Since the inception of Expert Connect by Ancestry.com in 2009, Ms. Lee was one of the original experts and conducted professional research for clients in the U.S. and in Europe. And Ms. Lee speaks and conducts workshops at genealogical societies and conferences in the United States and Canada. And she has an animated style. She's very knowledgeable about genealogy. And with her wit and perverted humor, people learn and are entertained at the same time. All right. And, oh, folks, you know, Natan just mentioned DNA. Okay, August 16th. We're going to talk about DNA. That's right, genealogy and DNA. How do they connect? Have you participated in the 23andMe Roots into the Future DNA study? Have you taken DNA tests from other companies? Why not join in and hear Joanna Mountain? That's right, Dr. Joanna Mountain from 23andMe, and she is a senior member of the research team. She served on faculties of the Anthropological Sciences and Genetics Departments at Stanford Stanford University. You know, you have those questions? Tune in. She is the one that can help you with that vocabulary, understand stuff like markers and cinemorgans and segments and all that stuff that perhaps I can't tell you, I'm a layperson, but we're going to have a geneticist on who can talk to you about DNA and genealogy. Natan, who's next? Next, on August 23rd, we will have a show about oral histories and personal memoirs, and the guest will be George Jeter. He is a New York native and a New Mexico photo restoration artist. He calls himself an evangelist for African ancestor genealogy because he believes that our people need to research our family histories so the truth of what really happened in this country can be revealed. In 2007, he was featured in a segment on the PBS television show History Detectives about his second great-grandfather who was a soldier and veteran of the Civil War. And Mr. Jeter, along with his wife Cynthia, received the prestigious 2012 award for Community Development from the New Mexico Office of African American Affairs. And who's the guest for the last Thursday in August, Bernice? Okay. Hey, folks. I love this topic, the Slave Manifest of Coastwide Vessels, filed at New Orleans, Louisiana, between 1807 and 1860. That's right, the Slave Ship Manifest. Now, if any of you know or you remember, Bernice went stone crazy when she found her ancestor on a slave ship manifest, and the ship was called the Cheyenne. That's right. I wanted to know everything possible about that slave ship. And so we're going to have Claire Kluskins. Claire is a genealogist at the National Archives who has worked and worked hard on the Slave Manifest. And this is a record with slave names. It names the individual's first and last name, age, owner, where they departed from, where they arrived. You don't want to miss this show. I certainly don't want to miss this show. So, folks, that's the August lineup, and I'm really looking forward to all of the guests who will be coming on in August. And Dr. Pearl Alice Marsh, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. And also, Natan, thank you for being the co-host and providing the listeners the challenge to understand the historical significance of searching for your ancestors. Good night, and thank you, thank you, Natan, for co-hosting tonight. 
And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you shall follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and beyond Facebook page. Also, I want to remind everyone to listen to Nurturing Our Roots. That's right, blogtalkradio.com with Antoinette Harrell every Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I am actually a guest on Nurturing Our Roots next Tuesday discussing the Homestead Act of 1862, and this is the 150th anniversary of the Homestead Act of 1862. So please join us next week listening to Antoinette Harrell, and don't forget the African Roots Podcast tomorrow with Angela Walton Raji. So thank you for joining research at the National Archives and beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night. Good night, Nathan. Good night, Bernice. Good night, Dr. Mosh. Good night.